Hi everybody, I'm Brian Norcross. This is our second Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast of the 2022 hurricane season. Coming up on today's episode is Eric Blake, Senior Hurricane Specialist at the National Hurricane Center. The Hurricane Specialist Unit is the group at the Hurricane Center that makes the forecasts in real time and does the post-analysis after the season to be sure that the final record is as accurate as modern science allows. Eric is involved in other things as well, including he's on the committee within NOAA that generates the official government hurricane season forecast, and he recently gave a talk about the somewhat sudden improvement in the Hurricane Center's skill in forecasting hurricane intensity four and five days in the future. We'll talk about that, which is huge, and a lot more. My talk with Senior Hurricane Specialist Eric Blake is coming up in just a minute. The tropics have been nice and quiet, except for the system that dumped the incredible rain on Miami and eventually turned into Alex offshore. Last year, we had four named storms before the end of June. We'll see if something changes. But right now, the upper winds across the tropics are mostly hostile, and there's a lot of dust and dry air out there. The only place to watch is in the far western Caribbean near Central America. A large area of low pressure is forecast to form over Central America over the next few days, and sometimes these huge circulations can spin off a tropical storm or a hurricane, and that can happen in the Caribbean or the Gulf or the Pacific Ocean. National Hurricane Center is mentioning the possibility of something organizing, though it would not threaten the U.S. In other big news, Ken Graham moves up from director of the National Hurricane Center to director of the whole National Weather Service, of which the Hurricane Center is a part. This is a big deal for a lot of reasons. First of all, Ken is a fantastic, empathetic administrator and has always cared a lot about the communications part of the equation. It's not just about making good forecasts. People have to understand them and believe them. Ken ran the National Weather Service office covering New Orleans before running the Hurricane Center, We've had many conversations about confusing terminology and getting the message to the people so that they can make good decisions. The move is great for the National Weather Service and the American public. He'll have big shoes to fill following the retirement of Dr. Louis Cellini, who led the Weather Service through a lot of important changes. Congratulations to Ken Graham. And Jamie Rome was named acting director at the National Hurricane Center. Jamie ran the storm surge unit for years and was responsible for developing the products that focus on the storm surge threat these days, which we didn't really do in the past. And congratulations to Jamie as well. And now, here's my talk with Senior Hurricane Specialist Eric Blake from the National Hurricane Center. Hi, Eric. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for inviting me. So you're a Southeast Louisiana guy and you're pretty popular with hurricanes. Was it personal experience that got you hooked in the first place? Yeah, it really was. Um, back in the, the 1985 hurricane season, we had all these hurricanes uh, hit the Louisiana coast. And boy, it was really a crazy, it was a crazy year for, for a nine-year-old that tracks hurricanes. You had Hurricane Danny and Elena and Juan. And then Kate at the end of the year, just for, for good measure. And that uh, after that hurricane season, I, I was hooked for life. And Elena was one of those really crazy ones. I mean, your Elena, which zigzagged back and forth, caused this chaos from the Tampa Bay area over to Pensacola. And uh, it was my equivalent hurricane was Hurricane Betsy mm. that I was surfing in as it went up to Cape Canaveral, then stopped and then turned around and came back and, and hit South Florida. Uh, have you ever looked back on on Elena or those storms and kind of wondered uh, what would I do or how would the forecasting be different? I mean, that was just one of those really, I'm sure it would be difficult to forecast today, right? I mean, we wouldn't be able to predict a thing going back and forth from Tampa to Pensacola or Pensacola to Tampa back to Pensacola, I guess it was. I think it would be one of those low predictability situations. You know, we saw with Hurricane Sally a couple of years ago. You know, most of the forecasts had it going into southeastern Louisiana, and then it, it took a right turn into, you know, near the Mobile area. So it was, you know, I really do think that, you know, the forecasting has gotten a lot better, but I, I, I do like to think about the past because, you know, back in those days, you you found out the next morning where the hurricane went. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, it's, you know, I, gosh, what was the hurricane? 
I think it was Jerry in, in 89 or something. I was expecting it to hit Louisiana. And then, oh, by the way, it hit Texas instead. And you just woke up the next day. And, and we're not talking about like a 48 hour or 70. We're talking like the next day. So it, yeah. we've kind of come a long way since then. Yeah, I think there are fewer surprises. But like you say, Sally was amazing in that really the New Orleans area got jazz for it. And I don't think people in Pensacola were ready for it when it it just kept going that way. But it's under the heading, isn't it, of slow moving or just developing storms are always going to have more difficult forecasts? Yeah, you know, those systems that are in moderate, moderate wind shear, you know, there's a lot of different things. And it's, it's really a communication challenge because, um, you know, you've seen those things in moderate shear. You've seen them become hurricanes, strong hurricanes. I mean, yeah, like Sally my- was approaching. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> Sa- Sally was approaching, you know, category three when it made landfall. But uh, other times you see things in moderate shear, they just weaken. And it's just kind of on the knife's edge. I like to, you know, I, I look back at that year and I, I, I laugh just a little bit because that year I, I put out a hurricane warning for Marco and a hurricane warning for Sally. Uh, for Southeast Louisiana, <laughs> and one of them died, and the other one hit the different states. So it's just a, it's a very humbling job sometimes. Yeah, and, and Marco, that was another like very very odd set of circumstances with Laura, kind of right on its heels and the, and right on the knife's edge, uh, as you say, a slight difference, and that could have been a significant storm in Southeast Louisiana from everything uh, we know. You know, the first time I became aware of you, I think you were in college in Louisiana and you produced what I thought was the best hurricane website I ever, <laughs> I ever imagined. I mean, this was back in the beginning. Remind me that what that was and how that happened. Oh, Brian, it was, uh, it's, uh, it's funny to look at, at uh, back in the mid-90s when I developed the Atlantic Tropical Weather Center. That's what it and, was, yes. And, I thought, uh, oh, it's this whole new center. Mm. <laughs> you know, a little that I know, it's this kid in Louisiana. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. did it on, you know, learn a little HTML and do some mm-hmm. programming and try to put together the links that, that I didn't have in, you know, back in those days, you, you, you know, you didn't have processors, you just had to, it was a collection of links. Right. It's not like I was producing any specific information. And now I look at, you know, websites like Tropical Tidbits or Weather Nerds now. And I just laugh and think, well, these kids are a lot better than I was back then. <laughs> it's a whole different scale. But at that time, I mean, the World Wide Web only came along in 95, right? So this was, when was this? In the late 90s? Is that when you so, did that? So I think I did that in the mid-90s. I mean, I didn't even really, really know what the, the internet was until I went to college. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm dating myself a little bit, but in 94, I'm like, ooh, what's this internet? And, oh, I can get information on Mosaic and all those old ancient browsers. And, right. you know, I can look at the MRF model and one 10 panel display and for 10 days. And, you know, that was like kid in a candy store back then. Yeah. Well, you know, Hurricane Andrew came along. There was no internet. I mean, you know, none of that data, nothing was accessible uh, unless I called the Hurricane Center and asked a specialist, you know, what in the heck's going on? Uh, so, all right, so you went to college, you went to CSU, and you studied under the amazing uh, Dr. Bill Gray after uh, leaving Louisiana. How did that happen? Well, you know, going back, you know, I always knew that I wanted to study hurricanes. And when, you know, I guess Bill had good media. Um, he, he was a character. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the question of well, how bad is this hurricane season going to be? It's kind of like, it's kind of like the first question people are starting wondering in April and May. And this is the guy that had the answers, uh, not always the right answers, but he right. definitely had the answers. And he was very quirky, but charismatic and highly opinionated. And uh, but I genuinely, you know, when, when you when I first met him, he was just a generally down to earth guy. Mm-hmm. That's a weird thing about Bill. He, you know, when you're 20 something, you're just terrified of, of, of those people. And, but you realize, you know, they, they put your pants on just like everyone else, but mm-hmm. some people are just very standoffish, but Bill very immediately would just, you know, come down to your level or just be on your level. That's just where he was, even if he was a you know scientific dignitary at the time. Um, you know, it was between that and, and the university of Miami. And I, I figured that I'd end up in Miami soon enough. So mm-hmm. I figured I'd go to Colorado for a while and, and see what it was like out there. 
Yeah, I went out and interviewed him in 1995 at Colorado State. And, you know, I remember the first questions. We were walking kind of up the hill to the, the building where uh, he worked. I said, you know, how does this go with hurricanes? I mean, even kind of remotely. And, you know, he told me, uh, he told me the whole story, and it's actually a pretty complicated story with Dr. Real and all these different you know, moving mm-hmm. parts that, that got him to Colorado State. But he told me he was sitting in uh, Miami in the early 80s and started thinking about how some hurricane seasons were busier than than others and you know some are quiet and really quiet and i mean 83 you know was barely a blip i mean there was alicia hit houston but but four storms i think were named that year uh, and you know that led him down a path of looking in africa and and el nino la nino well, what do you remember about him uh, talking about his process for for determining, you know, the, how the season's going to be uh, when all that started. Sure, and I'll just say my, my favorite Bill Gray answer to the question of why study hurricanes in, in Colorado was always because they can't get us here. <laughs> that was that was he was a, you know he, he of course had a very a distinct accent and, and speaking pattern. I won't dare do it, but <laughs> right, uh, right. Uh, but yeah. Um, so going back to your question. Um, you know, he was just always very interested in, you know, how things worked. You know, going. He, he liked to really dig into the data. And when I went to CSU in 1998, um, we had just had the release of the NCEP NCAR reanalysis data, and it was this kind of this treasure trove of of uh, of historical data. So back in his, back in the seventies and eighties, they would use computer cards and use individual soundings and, and do it. But now it's all digitized and you could do areas and you do it at a few clicks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really what he, he was interested in digging a little more into that, into that specific data set and, and learning more about the, the seasonal forecasting. Mean, I kind of came into, into an interesting time because you know, he was still suffering from the, the big 1997 hurricane season bust. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that he called for an active year based on, <laughs> I don't know, it was like Singapore, 50 millibar. It was some crazy thing. He just, he bought into his model a little bit too much. And he, he would always say he, he definitely had to eat some crow on that one. It's funny, though, how things work, because noah started seasonal hurricane forecast because of how bad that bill gray forecast was really uh, 1997 yeah. was this huge el nino as it turned out which yeah which just shut off everything where in 95 things blew up like we hadn't seen in forever and i don't why don't i remember 96 but but 97 they just turned oh. off well 97 was pretty busy i mean you had, you had fran 96 96 Coast. was fran yeah, yeah. sorry 96 yeah and uh it was it wasn't Bertha in July, so it was a kind of a different kind of season. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a Miami year in '96. That's why I don't remember. Right. Yeah. Well, I was actually went up for Fran. I actually took the helicopter oh, okay. from, from Miami all the way. I didn't fly the whole, the whole way. I flew on an airplane, but the helicopter came and met me, and we flew Wrightsfield Beach up to the Surf City and all along the uh, Carolina coast. There, yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, the '97 anyway. '97 was the big bust. I didn't know that 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 Noah actually decided to jump on board that yeah, I, I can't remember the guy's name he was a former um a cpc department head climate prediction center mm-hmm. um and he insisted that they could do it better uh and uh you know i wasn't there at the time so i couldn't tell you but but that's how the story's always been related to me by you know by jerry bell the former head of the forecast who's you know basically did it you know since it started until he retired uh, a year ago. Yeah, fairly recently, yeah. So you were one of uh, Colorado State and Bill Gray's star graduate students. Uh, you know, among, <laughs> honestly, among several luminaries in the hurricane business that uh, worked or, or studied under Bill, I mean, it's an amazing legacy that, that of, of the group of you, and I know that you're uh, still friends uh, to a significant degree. Did you work on the, the seasonal forecast when you were at Colorado State? I did. No, that was the my primary thing. You know, you know, basically the seasonal forecast back in back in the day was <laughs> 
everyone, you know, we'd, we'd have a, a long discussion, you know, like five to seven of it. It, it kind of depended on who was available. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just talk about the factors for the season. And, you know, we'd write down, you know, 14 storms, seven hurricanes, two majors. What's the, you know, the ace, the total for the season. He, he had used NTC, net tropical cyclone activity. Right. It's not terribly different from ace. Um, anyway, and, and he came up with the final answer. I mean, he, he, he was like the, the McLaughlin group or something. Another old reference uh, that he, right. he would just come out with the final answer. And, you know, that's what we go with. Wow. Yeah, it was really interesting and amazing time. So, I mean, basically the idea was was then comparing it to uh, a normal average season, right? It was, okay, this looks like it's going to be above average, so we'll go a little bit or a lot above average, if I recall, how what his basic uh, thinking was. Yes, yeah, so I was always there for pretty busy hurricane seasons. I was there from 98 to 2001, mm-hmm. uh, and... Yeah, they always tended to be active. You know, we're kind of in the long-running La Nina at the time. And, you know, the forecasts were actually pretty good. I, I was just – I think I was just lucky to – better timing than it was just me. Um, but, yeah, you know, we just write all the forecasts. They had a big – a really large, wider, dry erase board. Uh, and we would just write our numbers in the corner and we'd think about – you know, the forecasts were a little different too because what you talk about in – you know, for the August update was different than what you talk about, like for the first April forecast. I mean, back in those days, we put out a December forecast, which exactly. is basically, <laughs> which was basically uh, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, Maybe a little PR to, to keep people thinking about Colorado State. But, but no, I think he, he had the idea that maybe it could be done. And if maybe it can be done, let's do it and be the ones to do it. There was skill. I mean, there was skill in Hindcast. Um, in real time forecast skill, no, but it worked, you know, there was a little too much, uh, there was a little too much relationship to like African predictors, rainfall. He always thought the Gulf of Guinea rainfall in October, November was more relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, it was just a hard thing to, to connect. Um, and I don't think that's why the, the, the December forecast worked out. Even the April ones only have marginal skill. Right. You really have to start to get the, the summer, uh, circulation, the you know, large scale circulation is set up before you really know. I mean, we've come a long way in the last 25 years with, you know, GCMs and the CFS and the European seasonal models. But until you really start to see it, you don't really, you don't really know. <laughs> you don't well, have yeah, that because confidence. There is this thing, the spring predictability barrier in terms of what the El Nino La Nina thing is really going to do. And the winds are so light over the Pacific in the spring that a little bit of this or a little bit of that can can make a difference. Although they do seem to have gotten somewhat better lately, it seems feels they, like to me. You're you're absolutely right, Brian. And you know, there's some there's some question of whether the spring predictability barrier actually exists. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite little niche topics, and it's it's really because uh, you know if you go back and look at how the spring predictability barrier was, it was. It was, it was more statistical. It wasn't exactly dynamical. It was like, well, this is the time of the year. It's hard. It, it, you look at the the predictors, the more statistical based, not dynamical global models, because back at the time, they were terrible, absolutely terrible. But now they're a lot better. Mm-hmm. So it's a question is, is this just a... I, it, I think now it's more believed to be more of a construct, like a, a, a spectrum of predictability. Um, rather than a barrier, uh, but that's probably a little bit of a might be a little bit of a hot take <laughs> in <Yeah>. science community. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you can imagine uh, this system in the Pacific kind of being on a knife's edge, right, or close to a knife's edge, where it doesn't take a whole lot to make it like some big event can kind of tilt it over, and if suddenly the uh, Eastern Pacific warms then that changes the wind flow and it can start a, some sort yeah. of, of cascade. It, you're absolutely right. And, but the thing about it is back in the 90s, you know, when that kind of term was, it might have even been the 80s that, was, that, was, that term came about. But back in those days, the models didn't simulate the, the, the Madden-Julian oscillation worth a darn at all. Right. So it was, it was terrible. So back in those days, if you had a strong MJO, the 
30 to 60 day large scale uh, tropical oscillation, if you actually had one of those that was strong, your model scale was much worse <laughs> because <laughs> the models couldn't handle it very well. Right. But nowadays, if you're in a, you know, a strong MGO situation, your model scale is a lot better because, because it's a source of predictability. Yeah. So it's a, so it's like, I, I think we're actually, I, we're definitely advancing the science. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the details are better resolved now than, than, than they were back then. Let's take a quick pause. We'll be right back on the Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So uh, after CSU, did, did that lead you directly to being on the part of the NOAA team that makes the official government uh, seasonal forecast? What happened or what happened in between? And what is that team anyway? So, so back in, gosh, I guess my first forecast was about 2002. I think I was at the Hurricane Center for a year. It's hard, <laughs> 20 years, it's hard to remember the, the specifics. But I know that Max Mayfield, he decided to put me on the, uh, put me on the team uh, because of my experience with, with Bill Gray. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and, gosh, you know, it's a little hard to remember I think it was something that was just bound to happen uh, before uh, Lixian Avila was was part of the team, and I, I think I, I replaced him. He'd say he'd say for a fight, and and he'd then later say willingly. <laughs> so yeah, right. it, it, it was seasonal forecasting is a it's difficult. It's very it's not a lot of you don't get a lot of glory for getting it right, but you'll get a lot of grief if you get it wrong. Yeah, and true. so it's a. Uh, you know, the risk reward ratio can be a little questionable sometimes. <laughs> so the prediction for this year was 14 to 21 name storms, six to 10 hurricanes, three to six category three and above a 65, 65% 65 chance of an above average season, which, you know, is kind of in line with what I think everybody was, uh, everybody else is forecasting. But I was kind of surprised to be honest with you that your name storms range wasn't one or two higher just given <laughs> given that we had 21 last year you know um so can you like remember or think about what the, what the reasoning was there sure well i mean so there's a series of of guidance that we have and i think that was just about the highest guidance mm -hmm. um you know versus the analogs and the like um you know talking a little bit about how the forecast is made it's a consensus of you know there's a lot of dynamical models out there the european uk met right you know, the, the weather service CFS model, but there's also um, individual forecasters. You know, you've got people from the Hurricane Research Division, AOML, you've got uh, NHC folks, and you've got Common Prediction Center folks. And, you know, the forecast ends up being a consensus of, uh, I think it was six or seven, six or seven of, so that's kind of the ranges were. And um, I, I was higher. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say, but it's, you know, it's a consensus forecast. And a lot of times the consensus ends up being right. I mean, I, we, you never quite know, and no, no one's ever really figured out what makes a, a busy year with a lot of storms versus a busy year. I, I call it the quantity, not quality, mm -hmm. or, or the quality, not quantity year. Um, say like a 95, uh, sorry, say like a 1999. When you had, you know, like 14 or 15, but nine of them were hurricanes. You had, you know, like five Giant major ones like Floyd and yeah, uh, and big, that, huge. Yeah. But you yeah. didn't have 21. Right. You, right. You, you didn't. I mean, last year we had like 21 storms, only seven hurricanes, if I remember correctly. So it's. And only it's, Ida really was one of those really memorable storms. Uh, sure. Yeah. For, for the United States. I for mean, the U.S. Yeah. That was. Yeah. That was historic, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's no one knows. 
I think you get a pretty wide variety with the same climate conditions. You'll get a pretty wide variety of seasons, sometimes lots of hurricanes, sometimes lots of storms. I mean, it's a little rare to get those 2005s and 2020 years that are just crazy. I mean, sometimes you just get big, strong hurricanes that kind of stretch things down for a while. Uh, you know, kind of right. you'll get this big trough that forms and sometimes it'll you know, slow things down the hurricane season. Maybe you won't get as many storms. It's yeah, I wish I understood a little better. <laughs> well, in your mind, is the ocean and atmosphere similar this year to last year? Um, in some ways it is. If you look like the raw Atlantic temperatures, it is. Um, you know, 2022 has now crept ahead of 2021 in terms of warmth. The big change from, from last year is the fact that lining your circulation is set up already. Um, you, you already have the very strong... Uh, you know, the, the lack of any deep convection over the Central Pacific. I mean, it's it's there. There's no there's no doubt on whether it is going to be there for the next month or two. The question is, how strong does it remain during hurricane season, which is a little different than what we were facing last year was, you know, the, the forcing was a lot less. The, the, sea, the, the cold tongue was a lot less. Is it going to come back? So I, it's a different kind of situation. I mean, we thought it would probably come back. Uh, but now we're, we're kind of, you know, in a many respects, a moderate, you know, a moderate La Nina. And, it, you know, this time of year when you have, uh, you know, the, the seasonal variability is less in like April, May, because you're at the warmest time of the year. So it, it's, uh, it, you know, like if say like last week we were on minus one degrees in Nino three, four. Well, that's a lot different than like a minus one degrees in, let's say, August or September, because, uh the standard deviation is much different. So minus one's harder to get, warmer or right. cooler. Right. Uh, so it's more meaningful. So, you know, we have a pretty stout La Nina circulation going on right now. Um, and if that, you know, sticks around, I mean, we can expect a pretty busy year, I'm afraid. Yeah, although uh, there are some models that indicate that it might fade uh, before the hurricane season is over, but... <laughs> anyway, we'll see. It feels like wishful thinking to me, Brian. <laughs> right, I, mean, yeah. I, I see a lot of things in the Atlantic Ocean now that the, the eastern Atlantic is warm. Um, you know, the, it doesn't matter so much on a seasonal basis, but the western Atlantic is really warm as well. It's a, so, Especially the know, subtropical uh, yes. Atlantic has been super warm. And then up the, up the coast, it's been for years, it seems like it's been exceptionally warm, I suppose, related to maybe the slowing of the Gulf Stream or something. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what the long-term average is, if the long-term averages change somehow in, in you know, something that has to do with the Gulf Stream. I don't know. You know, I, I'm thinking that, um, I'm thinking that, you know, the, we've had a lot of warmth in April and May in the Southeast. And that, you know, if you look at the Gulf of Mexico, it's been warm for quite some time. I mean, right. I mean, Gulf of Mexico warmth isn't really a big deal. It's always warm it's there always in warm, August right. and September when the, you get the big hurricanes. But it's not necessarily so warm off the East Coast. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, we've just had a pattern that, that that ridge has been stronger than average. So you're not getting all those big cold fronts. And, you know, it's been, you know, warm. And when you're, you know, your winter wasn't particularly cool either. So it's kind of an additive thing. And then I mean, this time of year, though, if you're looking to for how bad is the hurricane season going to be, you got to look farther east, though, because what tends to happen is that any warmer cold anomalies northwest of Africa have a tendency to kind of migrate southwestward with the current. Uh, and it's also, you know, it's also related to the strength of the Atlantic Ridge. You know, if you right. kind of hit a, a weak Atlantic Ridge early, you're kind of likely to get it later as well, because because you're going to get the Atlantic warming faster already. Right. You're and not so pulling you're the cold air south. You're not pulling the cold water south, and and right. you're you're not stirring up the ocean in the same way. It means uh, when the ridge is weak, the winds across the tropics are weaker, and so, the, the waters are warmer, and, yeah. and no more cold air, drier surges, or less dust. I mean, there's all sorts of things. It's the Atlantic is neat because it's very it's a lot more connected than some of the other basins for seasonal forecasts. Yeah, and more variable. Uh, although uh, because the Pacific is so big. And Atlantic storms, depending on where they form, run into land in a big hurry, and you've got a big desert on the other side. Yeah, the Atlantic is, is the most complicated one for sure. 
All right, on, on a different topic. Yeah, you gave a really interesting talk at the mm-hmm. American Meteorological Society Tropical Conference in New Orleans last month about intensity forecasting the last couple of seasons. And the key point was uh, that the forecast for how strong a storm is going to be, especially in four to five days in the future, have been significantly better over the last couple of years after it seemed like the errors uh, had plateaued for several years. And, you know, we were talking about a predictability barrier of some kind uh, there that, you know, maybe we were approaching that. You think that that indeed is is happening, and, and what do you think is going on to to that has caused us to have these better forecasts uh, here, especially at, at days uh, four and five? You know, so so you know, we're talking about intensity. So hmm. so different things are going on at different scales. So if you're trying to make the shorter term intensity forecast better, you're really going to need to know what's going on very near the system. Uh, kind of the internal dynamics, uh, what's going on in the inner core, something that maybe is a little less predictable. But when you're getting to days four and day five, I think you're you're generally starting to get to the fundamentals, the very large scale things. Um, you know, better track forecasts will also help your intensity forecast. If you know where it's going to be, uh, then you'll know you'll have a better idea what the shear is going to be. Uh, if you're near a, a sea surface temperature gradient, uh, then your forecasts are going to be better if, if you know it's over 27, you know, 80 degrees versus 82 degrees. I mean, that kind of difference doesn't seem like a lot. But that's a lot of energy. Let uh, alone are, 86 or 88 degrees sometimes. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but it, it's especially on the, the thresholds mm-hmm. that we'll see that. Um, and so... And so we're getting better and better at the large scale. The models keep getting better and better. It's just harder to do the, the shorter term. But if you give it enough time, um, the, the larger scale environment that's more predictable has a tendency to win out. If, we're, if we know where it's going to be, um, if we're getting better large scale forecasts as well, then we're going to have better, uh, better predictions. In addition, we're getting better models. I mean, if you look at 15 years ago, you know, we basically had one reasonable regional dynamical hurricane model. You know, we're going back to the the, the old GFDL days. Right. Um, but now you have at least three. And you, when you combine those with the statistical techniques, which have also been improving, then you have this powerful, say, five-member consensus. And, you know, when you started to see, you know, the big track improvements in the 90s, um, a lot of that was due to, you know, five reasonably skillful models coming together to produce a, a pretty skillful track forecast that works for intensity too. Uh, when, when you average, you could come up with a consensus by essentially averaging them in some kind of smart way often, but averaging. Sure. Yeah. But, but, but even an average, I mean, even a, even a dumb average, I mean, uh, when you, when you're dealing with kind of a chaotic system, and with random biases, mm-hmm. if you can cancel out those random biases, you're going to get a lot better forecasts. Um, and I also think that that uh, the rapid intensification, you know, that's been a big thing that's changed over the last, <laughs> definitely since I've been a, uh, a hurricane specialist. It's something we <laughs> didn't do at all uh, in the mid 2000s, the early aughts. But now, you know, we're not as as afraid to do it because we have better tools. I mean. Yeah, the, the forecasters definitely, uh, you know, we're starting to learn those tools and the, the people that develop them uh, it really helped. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you more about rapid intensification in a second, but but just going back to the sort of lower errors in those long-range forecasts, uh, you know, one of the questions was that you raised it was, well, I wonder if, if maybe these were just easier storms to forecast because you know, sometimes storms are easier than others. Some years, it seems like there are more easy ones uh, than there are other years. But can you quantify that uh, in terms of the easiness of the the forecast or easiness of, of particular storms to forecast? Sure. So what, how we use is we use a skill metric that uh, we call it CLIPPER, the Climatology and, and Persistence Model. Uh, but this Clipper model is something that, uh, you know, if you look at uh, many, many, um, if you if you go back and look at uh, many uh, years, you have an idea of uh, 
if you just have the information right now, no dynamical models, no nothing. Um, if you have, say, what's the storm doing now? What was it 12 hours ago? Uh, and you, you fit uh, uh, you, you fit curves to it and look at the historical data set. So you're talking pure statistics here, mm -hmm. no dynamics. Based on what's uh, happened you, in the past. Based on what's happened in the past. Then you can have a, a, a reasonably, um, we call it a no-skill model because you can go back and forecast a you know a hurricane 40 years ago using the exact same way mm -hmm. and so it's a way to track it over time uh, such that you can say well this storm is harder this storm is easier um uh, you know if a storm is recurving it's you know turning to the north and northeast it's likely to keep moving to the north and northeast and, and, and accelerate speed so how much better are the models then um, and so you'll get better, you'll get more credit for doing things that uh, are aclimatological. Uh, so if your models are like, well, it's going to miss this trough and instead catch the next one. If you can forecast a loop correctly, then you're going to get uh, a lot of points versus that clipper model. Uh, and if you run it enough, you can see, well, we are really skillful here, not so skillful here. Uh, and, and nowadays we can go back and look and see. Uh, okay, well, so what's our long-term skill? And we looked and, you know, we're at some of the highest skill we've ever been uh, during the past couple of years um, using that type of metric. Uh, and so that's what we're kind of confident that this, we just haven't had easy storm. We just haven't had these storms that look like, a, you know, a 10-year-old could fit a ruler to it or something. Uh, it, it's indeed, it, it is more skillful. So what, if I'm right, what you're essentially doing is you're comparing it to uh, if a storm behaved like it on average would have in the past, then that's an easy storm. But if it behaves in some other kind of way and you pick that up, then that's a harder storm to forecast and you win the, the points uh, and get paid all that extra money, I'm sure, because you got the <laughs> forecast right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we don't get paid by the storm. We we get paid the same amount of a zero versus twenty. So I, I'm I'm all about zero. Yeah, yeah, I know we all are. And let's take a quick break. I'll be back with Eric in just a minute. Interesting. The easier to forecast metric does not take into account whether the storms are tracking near mountainous islands or parallel to a coastline or some kind of, of you know, annoying uh, geographical component, right? It, no, I don't think so. You know, I'd have to go back and look at it. Um, there, some of the statistical models do, but I don't think uh, land isn't a big predictor. And that's why yeah, land like in is, the ship's model, there's a, a component that has to do with with land in the vicinity and and of the track, something, as I recall, you, you can verify, you know, we've done subsets of verification, you can just verify, quote unquote, over water points. Mm -hmm. And we're still improving on those as well. It's easy. You know, it, it's easy to say, oh, it's over land, it's going to weaken that that's an easy, really easy forecast. Right. Um, but if your track forecast is terrible and you think it's going to be 100 miles offshore versus 100 miles onshore, you're going to get you're going to look more skillful because of the track forecast as well, not because you know anything special about the hurricane. But it's not like that isn't a useful forecast. Right. <laughs> I mean, if you're offshore and it is correctly offshore or or vice versa, that's useful information at five days, whether you're on the coast or off the coast. But when you have a, an Irma situation with Cuba, uh, where the forecast was just offshore and it ended up being just onshore. In terms of the distance, it wasn't that far off. But in terms of the effect, it was pretty significant in the end, especially for those poor folks in Cuba. Yeah, for sure. You, you don't want any part of a, a Category 5 hurricane. That, that's for sure down there. Exactly. So IDO was a, a big success, both in terms of the computer forecast and, and uh, also you and the forecasters at the Hurricane Center pushed the envelope uh, toward the strongest models instead of the lower consensus number. How is the thinking on doing that change? I imagine it still feels a little risky going for some kind of dramatic intensification, especially with a storm bearing down on land and, you know, everybody just, you know, on bated breath for the next forecast. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Brian, that's hard. I mean, it, it's kind of situational dependent. I mean, 
I mean, I did not make the first forecast with with Ida, but I remember the situation pretty well. It's, you know, you're you're talking about coming into the climatological peak of the season. You've got extremely warm water ahead of it in, in the Gulf. Um, climatology and persistence would say this storm is going to do something and, and nothing nothing good. Uh, you also had a very, uh, if I remember correctly, you also had the the loop current, uh, a, lo- a lot of very warm eddies involved. And you had all the models really showing, you know, low or decreasing shear up through landfall, you know, and, you know, the, the, the forecasters are like, you know, this is a, uh, <laughs> alarm bells are ringing off. And I think if you go back and look at some of the, uh, some of the models and, and, and tweets, I, I remember one I specifically issued, not, not as a, you know, just looking from afar, like, oh, this, is, this isn't good. Yeah, I mean, there's not n- nothing about this situation we like. And, you know, we are very aggressive and, you know, what, not even aggressive enough, but it's, you, you really have to kind of, you don't want to cry wolf, but you also want to make, you know, when, when your first forecast from basically nothing says it's almost going to be a major hurricane, th- that's sh- hopefully caught enough people's attention. Well, and, and in the end, um, you know, the Category 3 forecasts, which were pretty persistent, ended up being a Category 4. You know, anybody that prepared for a Category 3 was ready for a Category 4. I mean, there's no, from a preparation standpoint, when a big hurricane's coming, a big hurricane's coming. And, and uh, so it's the flavor that counts more than the specific number, I think, once you're into that range. So did the success with Ida give you more confidence to forecast? rapid intensification after that, like with Agatha over Memorial Day weekend, <laughs> although that storm kind of gave you a little head fake there for, for a bit. You know, Agatha, I, <laughs> I you know, I'll, we need to go back and really look at what happened with Agatha because, uh, you know, we, Agatha, you know, it was, oh, it's intensifying. Oh, it's weakening. Oh, it's intensifying again. It, it's when you kind of have just satellite information. Mm-hmm. So Agatha was hard from a, a lot of weird things. So you had a, a very strong system in an area that very rarely gets strong. So it's very aclimatological right. to have something that strong in May. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's coming from that up. direction. I mean, that we don't get yeah. storms there from that direction. They usually are parallel to the coast or something like that. Every now and again, but it, it's so early in the year, we really hadn't seen that, right. um, at least not that strong. Um, and so I think you're probably going to get the strongest so early in the year so far east in terms of like a category two. Um, and Agatha was also very small. And these small systems are the one that gives forecasters fits because they, they change up and down very quickly. And they're also because they're subject to it. The, this little small core, oh, some dryer mixed in. Uh, it's They're more susceptible to shear. The models aren't as good because the models can't really can't really simulate the inner core quite so well and we don't have the we don't have the the data that we need I, to, to really get into that um and even so even, even the remote sensing uh type of stuff so we like to look at the microwave imagery the polar orbiters that'll give us you know three to six looks at a system a day kind of the kind of the cat scan going underneath the clouds um it's so small that only the highest quality sensors, you could really see what was going on. Um, and I remember the, the first recon into Agatha, we were like, so this is really small and really strong, or it's just not as good as we think. And we don't, we didn't know which one it was <laughs> right. until right. I got in there. I'm like, oh, it's really small and really strong. Right. <laughs> and that's the benefit of the, the, the recon did. Yeah, yeah. I, there's no, we don't have no other really devices because the stuff in space for these little things, anything that's that's really small. And I think it comes back to what you were talking about earlier about being on a system, being on kind of a knife's edge. A, a small vortex is kind of on a knife's, knife's edge because it's not moving anywhere near as much air as a large vortex. So its own momentum it doesn't sustain it if something goes wrong. It's like it's easier to throw a wrench in the the works it seems like if a wrench happens to come along yeah you're absolutely right it's so it's so small things they're very fickle and yeah you'll see some pretty large errors due to the, the, those small systems so hurricane harvey in 2017 and florence in 2018 the, the intensity forecasts were terrible harvey mm-hmm. at landfall of course not uh not when it was over houston 
So if those storms happened again, do you think modern technology would pick any of that up? Or was that, you know, once again, some sort of knife's edge kind of phenomenon going on? I mean, neither of them seemed like bizarro, you know, totally different, geez, we haven't seen this before kind of storms. Uh, they seemed pretty straightforward, it seemed to me at the time, although, you know, Harvey obviously happened pretty close to the coast, so this there wasn't a big time horizon that days and days, but Florence was out in the middle of the ocean when it was misbehaving. Yeah, you know, I I would like to think we'd be better. Uh, and I guess for a couple of reasons, I think, you know, the first off is that, you know, the the aircraft data that we're getting, the, the P3, the, the tail Doppler radar data, um, since 2017, we've really, we have a better understanding of how to initialize that data with the models. If you look at, um, you know, say 10 years ago, uh, whether we initialize that radar data, it didn't change the models necessarily correctly. They were all kind of developing hurricanes, but <laughs> maybe they're biased to their own model, their own model problems. But nowadays, if you get that high detailed data and lots of drops, you're actually, uh, we're actually able to make better forecasts. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to think we'd be, uh, we'd be better, especially with Harvey. Now Florence, <laughs> I, Florence, when it took that little right turn and, and rapidly intensified over the ocean, uh, and, unless we're getting, unless we get a lot better drone program, we're not going to, that's going to be a, that's a harder lift. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we'll be a little better closer to landfall. Um, but I would like, you know, there were some positives there. The, the rainfall forecasts, you know, were quite good. Yeah, they're essentially perfect, those. right. Yeah, so, so you, you want to get the, uh, the forecast right, um, the, the surge forecast and the winds forecast right. Um, but the, the forecast that affected the most people, it, it, at least we generally got that pretty well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Harvey was a Harvey was a tough one. Yeah, uh, absolutely true. I, I remember. So I was working, of course, during Florence, and I think I said at the time that what happened was that Florence steered out of the high shear. <laughs> so, like, if it had gone where it was forecast to go, it would have gone into this these hostile upper winds, but it didn't go exactly where it was forecast to go, and therefore it it happened to run into. Uh, you know, more conducive and a more conducive environment. I think something like that, it's almost certainly what happened. So, so Florence is another one of those cases of moderate wind shear. Mm -hmm. And in that case, it was moderate and supposed to be increasing. And so you're looking at this systems like, well, so, you know, the shear is, is moderate and should be increasing. So what it did is that, well, okay, so now it's going to intensify. So it, it took this right turn. So by taking a right turn, it actually it changes the the shear because instead of maybe say like you know 315 like northwest well now it's moving north northwest well that's going to change the shear i mean if you have southwesterly shear well maybe it lessens the amount of shear um you know and i think that's why that's what i was thinking is that the new patch of atmosphere that it found was just more conducive there was there was less shear there was something you know yeah. yeah, and I mean that's a, you that, get, it. Just shows how track and and intensity are so intertwined, not just related to land and mountains, but also related to different parts of the atmosphere. Just uh, have you know different kind of, of support for strong hurricanes or for weakening or whatever. I think it was Dorian in twenty a, a couple of years ago that it reformed and then it was supposed to go on one side of Puerto Rico and went the other oh, side. Oh yeah. Oh, that was because a, that was a terrible forecast, but you know, there was a big mountain. Good for that, island. But right. <laughs> well, forecast. Not so good for the Virgin Islands. Not so, so. good for the Virgin, but, right. but it was just, you know what, when the, the vortex is very weak, it's a, it's kind of a, it's just hard. It's hard to know if it could and, and we see that kind of down shear, we call it like a down shear reformation. You know, models are starting to hint at those things happening, but they're still not very good at it. Right, and, and one model will have it over here and one over there will go, oh, all of them have it reforming, but in some different place. So, And the place makes so gonna... much difference. It's the thing where it reforms makes can make it does. hundreds of miles of difference uh, downstream. So this, you know, if you think about just a little bit of an angle difference, for example, 
if it were to go straight, that would be a long difference three or four or five days downstream. Brian here. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back on the Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast. So going back to the rapid intensification idea, the state of the science of the main models that most people look at, the GFS, the European, whatever, uh, normally they don't explicitly predict these rapid intensifications. So I know that a, a different system is used essentially involving the odds of, of a system rapidly intensifying in some time period. So is there a, a percentage threshold that you look for, for example, if it said there was a 30% chance of a 30 knot, 35 mile an hour increase in 24 hours, you know, is that a high chance or uh, would you forecast it to be, to rapidly intensify with a 30% chance or, or, you know, what do you use? What, what numbers uh, trigger you to say, okay, this, we need to go ahead and put this in the forecast? Yeah, I, that's a really good question, Brian, because because there's no specific threshold. I mean, when you're dealing with probabilities, it's, uh, do, do you believe that 30%? I guess it's <laughs> the question is what, what does this 30% mean to you? Is it, I mean, we can see where it comes from. We can see the, the predictors. Is it, is it something, you know, more second order something that's a little harder to predict, or is it, you know, or, or is it something Gosh, you know, it, without an individual circumstance, it's hard to know. And you have you, multiple of uh, multiple of these models now that, sure. that offer these percentages, right? So although sometimes one of them has it and the other ones don't, and that one ends you know. up being right, that happens too. In fact, that just happened last year, as I recall. But uh, yes, I guess you, you just look for the best evidence you have and, and try and decide whether it's real. Yeah, I mean... I, We've, you know, it's, uh, it's forecaster experience. I mean, really, you know, does this, does this make sense? You know, we have better tools now so that we can kind of, you know, for a time we could only really look at that shear from, you know, let's just look at the 200 millibar to 850 shear. You can look at like mid-level shear, forecast shear. You can look at, you know, time sections of how the the hurricane or tropical storm is going to evolve and it's a question of well i mean do you believe it? it it does it look like it's handling it now has it like what's changing are is the environment really going to change more more favorably and it's uh, a <laughs> i don't know i feel like i i hit my uh, my limitations of knowledge in this in this job pretty quickly at sometimes because you're like wow this this looks exactly like it and uh, you know, six times out of 10, it doesn't do anything. But what about those four times? And how, how do I know those four times? It's, it's, it can be very humbling when, when sometimes you're just like, well, <laughs> back at it again. Here it comes. Here, a new situation and just try to do the best you can. So bottom line, it, it seems to me, because I've known you a long time, that for you, forecasting is fun, right? I know it's, uh, there's a lot of pressure. You guys are on a tight time clock, uh, and it's so important. And from the outside, it all seems to go so smoothly. But uh, is it fun? Eh. <laughs> Some situations are more fun than others. I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say it's fun. I, I, I do it because I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't... Uh, it's a scientific and mental challenge of, you know, in an operational environment, you know, you have some constants, you have to get the forecast out. We have, it's funny, we have a, an absolute fire hose of information, but you have to have a really good, I mean, for lack of a better term, a, a really good BS detector mm -hmm. in this job, because you may have a fire hose, but, but a lot of the information isn't really going to help you make a better forecast. Mm -hmm. It's picking out that those pieces of information that 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 this is going to this is going to help this RI. This is probably going to hinder it. And finding those little nuggets, uh, but that that's really a challenge. And I, I guess that's why 
that's why we get paid the so-called big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and every storm is different, that's for sure. So if you make a, a bad forecast, does it stick with you or do you kind of let it go because you have confidence that you, you did your best with the information you had? <laughs> you know, it, it really depends. I mean, I was I was pretty aggravated with Ag Agatha several nights ago because it's like, Oh, it's not going to strengthen much. And then it rapidly intensifies. And then the next day, you know, I wrote some line about, I'm, I'm not going to believe the models. And, and then of course it weakened, but then it was rapidly intensifying at some level up to landfall. So I felt okay about that one. I mean, mm -hmm. some of them, some good ones will stick with you. I mean, I, I try to, you have to have a, you have to have a, a short memory though, because I, I mean, I don't remember who told me that told me this, but the, the forecast you put, out at 5 p.m., it will be wrong. It is 100% chance yes, it will be wrong. Now you're trying to minimizing the degree. I mean, if you don't want to be wrong, don't be a hurricane specialist. You're just going to be wrong all the time. It, it's a matter of degree. Yeah. But yeah, I've never put out a, for, a perfect forecast. Never, probably never will. Every now and again, you'll see a, a point that you have like a zero intensity error and, and a zero track error. Every now and again, you, they're just like these moments. You're like, oh, that was just probably luck. <laughs> On the other hand, what really counts is is the thrust of it, correct? Because it's not yeah. the, the details, whether it's plus or minus a little bit, is not that's not relevant. If people take it to heart and are prepared for the right storm, if it affects them, that's it. Do you ever go back and look at, at uh, old storms that you've done, you know, and with kind of a, a new eye to see if you would do it differently? I don't generally go back too far. Uh, and it's because because our tools change. It's not often that, you know, oh, what would I have done differently? I mean, I think I've it took a few years to be able to to do this job very well um, because you, you pick up a few things, but you, you, it's hard to question yourself. And I don't know it's a it's a balance. It really is because you're like, oh, gosh, if I just known this information, but you don't know that ahead of time. I mean, you can really, you can twist yourself into loops and like, oh, if I just looked at this, but then the next time if you just looked at this, it would have been wrong. That would have helped you. So, so it's a little knowing that a priori, as they say, had mm -hmm. you know, you don't have that. So, I try not to beat myself up. I mean, every now and again, you get one that you're like, okay, we we did this right. I mean, I, I think I look back on the Laura forecast uh, I issued along with Stacy on a midnight shift. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but it, it ended up being a, a a big deal for the city of Houston. Exactly. Um, they based some evacuation decision based on it. It was a yeah. I said on TV, "Wow, the, those are gutsy people making forecasts at the Hurricane well, Center here." Because I, I got that one right. <laughs> yeah, you did. You did that one. That was a that was an amazing forecast. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I know, great I mean now that I'm thinking about it, we're yeah. thinking about like the European ensemble was like, oh, it's Texas. It's farther south than yeah. Texas. Right. And we're looking at meteorology gone. That, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so we kind of stuck with our guns. And, mm -hmm. you know, at least we it, it was not a perfect forecast, but it was on the right side. And if, if it saved the city of Houston from evacuating, I'll take that one with with my for, for that's a that's a career milestone to be perfectly honest. Yes, it is. It's, it was. Yeah. I've said that uh, many, many times. It, it was. It was really an accomplishment, a tremendous accomplishment for the Hurricane Center to stick with that, uh, and it was a dramatic thing. So I, I know at the end of the season, every storm is reexamined, and you know there's an effort to try and figure out what happened. Uh, like, do you remember Hurricane Joaquin? You know that drifted south in, into the central Bahamas and. And Dorian that shot off, you mentioned, to the right and hit the, the Virgin Islands. Uh, you know, I think we know with Dorian uh, why that happened, because it reformed and, and those are always very difficult. Do you remember, you know, Joaquin? Uh, is that just to be one of these things that storm was moving so slowly and under the heading of slow moving storms are, are uh, just always have larger forecast errors? And, and if we really did it in some dynamic sense, the cone would be bigger for a slow-moving storm. But that, to me, is one of the most profound ones of relatively modern times of uh, uh, a giant hurricane. Like you said at the beginning of our talk, when you were young, you would wake up and the storm was, you know, in a whole different place 
Joaquin almost felt like that to me for the folks in the Central Bahamas. I agree with you there. Um, so Joaquin, so Joaquin, so one of our classic error mechanisms now is when the track and the intensity are tied together. And so in, in this particular case, Joaquin um, started to intensify. It started to intensify, you know, we thought it was, it was another one of these moderate shear cases. Mm-hmm. Um, the shear would be too strong and we thought it would just, you know, kind of lift out very quickly. And then it ended up being a deeper, a deeper vortex than we thought. Uh, and the deeper vortex was going to be steered more to the south. And I think it was, it's hard in real time because you don't, for systems that are kind of on the edge, you don't really know if it's going to be, you don't really know whether it's going to continue. Yeah, so just to to be clear about that for folks that don't do this forecasting is the stronger the storm is, essentially, different parts of the atmosphere are responsible for the the steering. So as the, the vortex gets deeper in the atmosphere, then higher level winds come into play that would not have come into play if it was a weaker storm. And I mean, that was what did it in the end. I'd like to think if we had a, a, the P3 radar data in there now, we would issue a better forecast mm-hmm. um, because that was really that was before we were able to use that data effectively. Um, I, I'd like to think that I don't know uh, for that to be the case, but um, you know the, the data simulation folks are getting better and better at taking real data, putting them into the the models that have a better resolution and getting a more realistic uh, example of what uh, realistic what's happening right now. And if you get better initial conditions and your your model is better, you're going to get better forecasts. I mean, it just, you know, back in the early days, it just kind of be more generic hurricanes. And now they're more tailored to the specific conditions. Uh, and it's just it's super hard. It's, it's much more difficult than anything I could ever do to put all of that together. But, you know, they're starting to get you're better and better about that. Yeah, you see that in the simulated satellites, I think, that when mm. the model, they actually make a satellite picture just out of model data, and now it looks much more like the actual hurricane mm. than in the past it looked like some hurricane picture off a page of a magazine or something. It just, you know, didn't really represent the the current situation. I think. And that's obviously related to the resolution of the models and, and everything else as well. I, I think the simulated, you know, the simulated satellite has been an underrated, kind of below the radar improvement uh, for forecasters because now we're able to, you know, you can always kind of diagnose the convection. You could look at Omega or some funky thing like that, but you, you don't really know what you're looking at. But you show a forecaster, well, here's what the system's going to look like. Well, we know how to use that. We could deal with satellite data. Mm-hmm. And then you could you know, start to do measures like, oh, this storm's too big or the deep convection, the thunderstorm activity is too strong or weak. Um, and, you know, I think over the past, gosh, I wonder how long that's been around, five or five or 10 years now. Now we're able to see, well, deep convection's hard. Mm-hmm. It is a hard thing. If you get the thunderstorm activity correctly, um, th- that's, that's hard. Even the best models really struggle with it because it's, you know, what happens, it's a very local phenomenon in, good luck for a global model to get that local phenomena right unless it's kind of forced by it's complicated and so but now you you for as a forecaster you can look at well if this happens if you know you get a lot of thunderstorm activity you know over the center or if it's more displaced uh well that didn't happen well this model is probably less less accurate so it's a it's a it's a nice it's been a really nice improvement on it i wish all the models had that and but as we keep getting tighter and tighter resolution from these global models that are now starting to get, you know, sub 10 mile resolutions, then you're starting to get, you know, something that resembles your, you know, your two kilometer and your couple mile resolution of the, the infrared satellites now. So it's, it's, a, it's a very cool product and very useful. Yeah, it's kind of a macro way to look at what's going on as opposed to trying to look at the individual details. So uh, obviously, all of you guys have been dealing with COVID and so forth the last few years, but yet the hurricanes have kept coming <laughs> from, from the outside. It didn't yeah. seem like you all um, missed the beat. Was it a scramble or, did, you know, how did it all come together to make it you know, work so smoothly? 
Well, that's a <laughs> that's quite a quite a story there. Um, yeah, I, I, boy, it was what a what a what a yeah what a kick in the head to have a one of the most active hurricane seasons on record uh, in the middle of like the worst part of the the pandemic yeah. in 2020. Um, so I think uh, so you know, management and, and staff, we worked together to find out what the best solution was going to be uh, for NHC. So um, we, uh, you know, some of the more resourceful forecasters, um, uh, along with the technical support, we put together uh, uh, remote workstations. So we were able to, in the, in the less dangerous situations, we were able to work from home. Uh, such that, um, yeah, and so if, so if you had a storm, you, we were able to kind of duplicate what we were seeing at the Hurricane Center. Um, and it, that kept us apart and, and, and kept us safer so that we could stay at home because I mean, the last thing you need is people at a Hurricane Center with a COVID outbreak. I mean, we have backups, but, you know, no one's going to you know it's going to issue as good a forecast as, well, as the especially if you have uh, thirty storms. Yeah, this is very true, and so and so we lim- we tried to limit the the time in the office to the most critical situations, such that you know it, the risk was worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when the time we really absolutely had to be there, uh, and you know we kind of kind of developed a. Uh, a, a matrix of situations, you know, hurricane warnings in the building, you know, a, a storm a thousand miles from nowhere, not expected to do anything. Well, maybe this is a situation you, you should stay at home. And, you know, it's kind of amazing how quickly like Google Meet technologies, other remote things kind of made it like we were working there and mm-hmm. in many ways improved things. It, it, it was a strange it was a strange step forward in our communication to some of the outside partners because mm-hmm. uh, because now you could see people. Before we had, it was all just, you were trying to transition to, uh, into, to the video teleconic, uh, but it wasn't working very well. But now the Google Meet, you know, works all the time. Yeah, and you had to and, go into the other room and, and, yeah, and do that. Yeah, it was complicated as right, all can yes. be. And now it's, yeah. you know, Google Meet, which is, yeah. you know, free. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. A, that's a good price. Well, yeah. it worked. Uh, it worked amazingly well. All right, Eric. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to see you. Thanks, Brian. That's Eric Blake, senior hurricane specialist at the National Hurricane Center. Like so many other meteorologists I know, Eric started young, and he's been a star in the field ever since his amazing website when he was in college. If you read the technical discussions that accompany each advisory, you'll see Eric stand out as being clear and honest. Not that all of the hurricane specialists don't write amazing discussions, giving the time pressure they're under. On our next podcast, we'll talk with the new acting director of the National Hurricane Center, Jamie Rome, about what's new this hurricane season, moving from focusing on storm surge to all of the hurricane hazards, and lots more. That's coming up next week on our new Fox Weather podcast, Tracking the Tropics with Brian Norcross. And remember to download the Fox Weather app. You can watch the live stream of Fox Weather on your phone or iPad by just clicking in the upper right. And you can watch Fox Weather at foxweather.com or on the Roku channel, YouTube TV, and lots of other streaming platforms. I'll see you there on the Fox Weather stream and follow me on Twitter at bnorcross and on Facebook and Instagram. Until next week, I'm Brian Norcross. Be well and stay informed. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.